We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have a bonus pod coming your way after round four of the World Championship. We have a guest joining us from Astana, Kazakhstan. But first, a couple of matters to take care of. I want to give a shout out to our presenting chess education sponsors, Chessable.com. In addition to their litany of excellent courses covering all phases of the game, I might spotlight one on Ding Loren, uh, which covers his positional mastery, something on full display in game four. I should have given a spoiler alert there. Uh, I also wanted to give a quick rundown of the match before we introduce our guests. So we're recording this after round four on April 13th, uh, 2023, and Ding has just leveled the score. So it's already been quite a dramatic match, as we sort of hoped might happen when we have these uh, even matches. Uh, there have been storylines aplenty, but the, the long and short of it is game one was a draw where Nepo did have some chances. Game two, Ding played quite poorly by his standards, by Super Grandmaster standards, and Nepo won in an interesting opening in H3 anti-Catalan. Game three, after a rest day, Ding did manage to stabilize and drew pretty solidly on the black side of a Carlsbad setup in the Queen's Gambit declined. Uh, he actually, Ding actually had tiny chances at some points, but well-played game by both sides. And here in game four, uh, the old Nepo uh, showed some of his traits. He played quickly at times, and Ding played quite well. It was an English reverse Sicilian, and uh, Ding brought home the win. So we've got a new match, and it doesn't feel like it's been four boring draws. So here to discuss it and to give an uh, on-the-scene report is someone who made the first move today, the ceremonial first move at the World Championship. He's best known as Fun Master Mike on Chested 
chesskid.com, but he is also an award-winning chess journalist who has covered many world championships, and we are honored to have him joining us from the tournament venue, FIDE Master Mike Klein. What's going on, Mike? Thanks for that intro, uh, Ben. I loved it. Uh, you just forgot one thing. My lifetime number of moves in a world championship is now one. Anish Giri, zero. Uh, <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm ready to get ratioed. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Shots fired at Anish Giri, yes. So, Mike, how long before you made the first move today did you know that you were going to be doing it? Uh, I knew about six weeks ago. Uh, Chessable is one of the uh, presenting sponsors, if you want to call it that, some level of high sponsorship where not only do I get access to the VIP room for one of the first times as my fifth world championship, but Chessable has the right to make a first move. And uh, Chessable is not really here on mass, but since Chessable made the sponsorship, there was the merger with chess.com and Play Magnus. I'm going to make a long story short. I am the ranking employee here for chess.com, which means I'm the ranking, the closest thing we have to a chessable employee here. And uh, so it became very clear when we were organizing who was going to come here that it would be me. Uh, it's a little bit weird. In J school, they tell you not to become the story. I don't feel like I belong on that stage. But for the good of the company, Ben, I had to do it. Um, and then it was made clear five minutes later that I had to play B3 because uh, Gertz, the CEO of Chessable, said, uh, look, I got you the gig. Now you got to do one for me and you got to cowboy up and play B3. Excellent. Shout out to Gear. Yeah, he'll be uh, featured on this podcast soon on a non-bonus pod. And that, that's funny to hear. And that does make me wonder, Mike, I mean, obviously we'll get to the chess. I feel like it's been quite compelling. But one thing I wondered is, uh, obviously Kazakhstan, not um, the chess capital of the world, even though it's affiliated with uh, I mean, people compare it to Russia and the Soviet Union, which, of course, has a rich chess history. Are you seeing many chess fans at the match, Mike? Fans? No. Chess culture in Kazakhstan? Yes, unbelievably. Um, in fact, I believe they're selling tickets for 45-minute segments, uh, as they had to do back in London due to limited space constraints. However, I don't really know that they're selling very many tickets. It is something I'm going to be inquiring about, but it does not seem to be hard to get into the yurt. They've divided up the yurt in such a way that the playing hall is actually much larger than the spectator area, which you would think would be a blunder, but just turned out not to be a blunder because it's not that hard to get into the spectator area of that hall. Um, however, when I walk around Astana, I find uh, chess clubs and academies everywhere. I've had about five high-ranking people from Kazakhstan contact me because, you know, I got to wear my business hat here about uh, chess, chess and education, chess kid partnerships. Um, so I'm pleasantly surprised about that. Uh, so not a lot of international people here, but uh, uh, local chess culture, I think, exists very highly in Kazakhstan. Okay. Yeah. And of course, there are people there in a professional capacity. So I know that Viswanathan Anand and Irina Crush are there doing the FIDE coverage. Uh, and of course, you made news when you spotted some seconds, uh, even before the match began. So who else have you seen around that uh, the perpetual chess listeners might be familiar with? Yeah, this might be a humble brag. I had breakfast with Vishy this morning. Wow. Uh, and actually, I introduced him to a dish he didn't know he liked. So I went up and it's a five-star hotel. I, I ordered two fried eggs, and they've also got fried rice, and I invented this idea of putting them together. And when they came to deliver me my breakfast, for some weird reason, they brought two of these breakfasts, and Vishy's like, yeah, I'll try that, and he loved it. 
So uh, we're going to call it the Vichy, two fried rice, two fried eggs over rice. Um, I had breakfast yesterday with Leoncho Garcia, who told me all about how much time he spent in Moscow for the Kasparov-Karpov matches. Oh, I mean, fun. He, yeah, he's the Yasser Sarawan of Europe. You just sit back, have your coffee or your whiskey, and you turn the microphone on Leoncho, so to speak. Um, so that's been fun. Uh, Alexander Shabalov is here. He's doing the Russian commentary on site. Uh, came here all the way from the USA just for that. Um, and, you know, you've got, of course, you've got your FIDE dignitaries. They had a, an astronaut yesterday. Actually, Ben, I was supposed to make the first move yesterday for Nepomnishi, but I got bumped for a cosmonaut, some kind of national hero. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I haven't seen too many surprise faces, though. Um, okay. So, yeah. Yeah, and Lancho Garcia, of course, legendary chess reporter for El País, uh, the Spanish newspaper. And I actually wanted to mention, because he kind of broke the news, and I know you teased this in one of the videos you did, that uh, Nepo was was much more forceful in what he said uh, about the Ukraine-Russia war. So I just wanted to follow up, because in the preview, uh, I felt like I didn't, I didn't correctly portray... Um, the extent to which Nepo has been uh, vocal against uh, the Ukraine-Russia war. And my apologies for that. And Nepo, again, uh, talked about how his heart hurt. I don't have the quote in front of me, but I did just want to uh, mention that quickly before we go forward. Yeah, can I jump in about that real quick? Because uh, it's basically down to me and Leoncha who's going to ask any of these questions. There is some Russian media here that I would not expect them to ask. Now, Leoncha did have a pre-event one-on-one with Nepomnishi, which I didn't get, which is, uh, it's easier to ask that kind of question in a non-press conference setting. But uh, we, you know, Leon show full credit, he got Nepomnishi on the record as you as you read. And if I, in fact, the English version of that El Pais article is not behind a paywall. Uh, so that's really important for all your readers to know. So I'm, I'm debating when I'm gonna jump in to the, uh, the questioning in a public press conference, because uh, I don't really want to shoot myself on the foot and make Nepomnishi mad and then not have him answer my questions for the rest of the event. Um, but uh, there's there's one angle that I'm thinking about going after, which is uh, telling Nepomnishi if he had a chance to address the Ukrainian people, if they were watching this match, what would he say directly to them? Uh, I don't know what kind of reaction I'll get. Uh, I actually thought about asking a question like that today, but you only get a couple questions, and when the game is so exciting, you kind of focus on those. So I don't know what what do you what have your listeners been wanting to hear about Nepomnishi's view on the war? Yeah, well, I'll get to that in a second. I mean, one thing I just want to add is definitely after a loss, probably not the best time to ask Nepo that. So I'm glad that that you didn't uh, ask that today. And yeah, I haven't gotten a ton of comments, and you never know what the provenance of certain comments are, but certainly some people felt that maybe I was a little hard on, on Nepo. Um, and I know there's a, there's a gamut of opinions in terms of whether Russian players should be um, playing on an international stage, but there are certainly people who feel like the citizens of, of a country um, should not be held accountable for their government's actions. Uh, there's plenty of governments uh, committing um uh, acts of sin throughout the world and there's no reason Russian players should be singled out. So I'm not, I don't have a strong opinion to be honest, but I was just raising the specter in a previous episode, raising the possibility, but I did want to, uh, to credit Nepo for, for what he said, because obviously uh, any Russian speaking out against the war, it's an act of bravery and one that, 
people not from Russia uh, are are not faced with uh, these sort of conundrums. So I, I get your desire to ask him um, what he would say directly to Ukrainian people, but um, obviously there there's some risk involved in in his attempting to to answer it if he Good were point. to. I will report, because I've been asked this by several people, there are no visible Russian flags that I've seen at all in public places. So uh, that seems to be a pretty uh, hot button issue, the prevalence or uh, existence of Russian flags. I've seen none. Okay, good to know. Well, yeah, I mean, the politics, as we've said all along, they're an unfortunate backdrop, an unavoidable backdrop. But the chess, as expected, Mike, has been absolutely spellbinding. I mean, I feel like we've already gotten some dramatic turns. So of course, uh, Ding didn't look great. He, has, he seems to have a tendency to start slow. I feel like it's become a pattern. Um, but not only was his play a bit lackluster, but of course, he made news with uh, the quote about sort of um, his um, his state of mind when he said, after game one, he said, I feel a bit depressed during the first parts of the game before the middle game. I didn't think about chess much. My mind was very strange. Many memories, feelings also strange things happen. I feel like a little bit there was something wrong with my mind. Maybe it was the pressure of the tournament of the match, unquote. He also alluded to having gone through a breakup during the pandemic. And I don't know how the general chess populace uh, took these quotes, but the very online segment, I felt like really ding generated a lot of sympathy. I mean, we all we all have our ups and downs. We all know that, uh, you know, a chess game sometimes isn't the foremost things in our mind, even for a professional like ding. Uh, Mike, how did you react when you saw or maybe even firsthand witnessed those comments? Well, I have to say in the four rounds of covering him, uh, going to this tournament, I had some trepidation. Is he going to understand my nuance? Is his language good enough? You know, it, but he's turned out to be the star of the press conferences. He's been imminently more relatable than any other player I've ever covered in a world championship. He doesn't uh, worry about how he might be perceived about being completely honest about his emotions. And yeah, I'm the one that saw him prior to round one exiting the hotel with his luggage by the way, no entourage. He didn't even have anybody helping with his luggage. And we're in a hotel where a butler will bring you a coffee on demand if you ask for it. So he's a very humble person. And um, I have never seen somebody talk like that in a world championship, even if it's true, because it's almost like you let your guard down and you let your opponent know that you have a weakness, even if it's not a chess weakness. Um, there's a prevailing viewpoint that he checked out of the hotel because he did not want to run into Nepomnishi in random encounters, breakfast, elevator, on the way to the uh, playing site, whatever. The playing site is here at the hotel. Um, as you have seen, his attitude has completely changed as of round three. He talked to his friends. He denied needing a doctor. He looked so much more confident. He has checked back into the hotel <laughs> uh, where it's almost like a Hollywood movie, you know, where the player reaches his personal, uh, you know, Nadir and then and the all know, is lost moment. Yeah, right, right, right. The musical montage, which we've learned is going to be an 80s montage. Right. <laughs> uh, That's and, right. And, and although. Although he did, he did quote a Bob Dylan 1960s song when I asked him about that, but we'll we'll give him a couple of decades of uh, leeway. He's after all, you know, not from that era. But uh, he he seems like he's made the comeback, and of course, it's resulted in a positive turn in the games as well. So we're seeing uh, the most exciting World Championship match I've 
I've covered. It's the first one since New York 2016 where each player has won a game. That may not seem like much, but it, it, it is actually something. There's actually a momentum tide that it's, it's visceral. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, Vishy Anand, he on the uh, on the FIDE channel, they're doing some good little outtake, quick interviews. I saw one with Mike Klein pop up just before we started this interview. But uh, Vishy said, a win before the rest day is the best feeling ever. Um, and yeah, just to uh, to tie a bow with what Mike said about 80s music, for any listeners who don't know the reference, another one of Ding's quotes during this tournament was that, of course, as Mike reported, he's there with uh, Richard Rapport, a somewhat unexpected second choice, although uh, uh, an inspired one in my mind, because Rapport, of course, is known for his very creative opening choices and uh, Ding's um would be masterstroke for H3 in game three. A lot of people suspected uh, that that may have rapport's fingerprints on it, although that that game didn't didn't um, didn't work out so well. Sorry, that was game two. Um, but as you allude to, Mike, when the match starts, it feels so much different than if this this had just been four draws. So as we take a pause and approach game five, do you think that and Nepo, we've worried in the past, um, he was asked about this during the press conference. Um, do you worry about now his ability to bounce back, even though in theory, the match is tied, he should have nothing to worry about. Um, I kind of do. Cause remember the, uh, he played totally fine against Magnus for five games and seven and a half hours. And then once he had the first loss in Dubai, admittedly, there's a little bit more pressure knowing you have to beat Magnus in one of the remaining games, which is a taller order. And he's not even facing a deficit in the match. It is, it is still tied. Um, I wanted to know this after the round four press conference. It, I, you, you can't say to Jan, hey, you have a lot of experience losing in the world championship. Right. But but what I tried to ask him, and I think he understood it. He didn't bite and chop my head off. Um, I wanted to basically ask, hey, you've been down this road before after a loss. And, and did you discuss prior to this match what would happen in case of a loss mentally uh, that might be different than Dubai? And he basically said that, this is not Dubai. Yeah, no, duh. Um, but um, I, I kind of think that it, if his team were smart, that he would say, look, something's happened in Dubai after your first loss that didn't allow you to get back in the match. We need to change things. And I don't know what that means. I don't know the man. Maybe there's actually Ferris wheels all over the city. Maybe you put him on a Ferris wheel. Hmm. Um, <laughs> like it's just random enough to get his mind off things. Richard Rapport is so, I'm not going to say random, but he's, such a different character that maybe that helps ding in ways that we can't even quantify away from the chessboard. Now he does have a, a different guy here that is his confidant. So uh, Potkin is gone. Vityagov has sort of taken that role. Uh, Vityagov is going to be the guy that's closest to him, at least from what I've seen. Uh, another longtime friend, by the way. So somebody who didn't just join for this match. Um, but I do worry because we saw in Dubai after that eight hour loss, admittedly, that's like the hardest kind of lost to endure he just kind of fell apart after that yeah although as you say circumstances certainly different that was game six falling behind fewer games to go here he's tied so i'm not i wouldn't suspect a nepo self-destruction at this point but uh it's back on the menu it was it, i mean the the after game two it seemed like this could be over before it started. I mean, these things can spiral sometimes, but uh, props to Ding for first stabilizing in game three and now uh, going ahead and winning in uh, quintessential Ding style. Um, yeah, and if and I could just jump in and add that 
against Magnus, if I remember correctly, it was a lot of repetition of the same opening where you're you're beating your head against the wall. We've had four different openings here. So that is a very positive plus when you're a guy who wants to win a game is that you're just not going to have to like, you know, uh, draw blood from a stone on move 27 in an opening. You could get any kind of position, which could be helpful if you're trying to reverse the tide. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go. Yeah, it's been exciting. I mean, and do you think that we'll settle in? Because four games out of 14, not counting any sort of tie break, it's still relatively early. Do you think we'll settle in and see maybe someone, you know, give a second knock on a certain opening as Nepo did? You know, he's I, I feel like the, uh, the Queen's Gambit declined is doing so well theoretically that I don't know if we'll see another D4. Do you think Nepo will go back to his his more common E4? Or do you have any uh, opening predictions as we think ahead to the coming rounds? Well, in my limited research before this match, I saw almost all Ri Lopez is like every single game where Nepomnishi was white versus Ding. Um, I do think we'll go back to E4. Go, but when Ding is white, I think we're going to see a wider variety. It's not just that Rapport has some offbeat openings. He's just, I think he's, a less common repeater of openings, even if they are orthodox openings. Um, also keep in mind, Rapport is, um, I think, the highest rated on the field second that I've ever uh, come across in my five world championships. So the highest rated of anybody who's ever on the ground helping. And that might be one influence of Rapport on Ding that we've not thought about is opening variation, not even just orthodoxy versus non-orthodoxy. Um, I think that that's where Ding might I actually think because of Ding's personality, he might, I, I could see him in a room saying to Richard, Hey, you choose my next opening. Like I could see that level of trust already forming. Of course, I'm not in their room. I don't know why they won't invite a journalist, but uh, I think that we could see that sort of um, tightness developing already. Yeah. And especially with what Ding has ventured, as as we mentioned in, in game two, when he played H3 on the fourth move, the engine kind of yawns, you know, it's not a move that's, you know, it might catch your opponent off guard, but it's not expected to, um, to win by force or anything that that much is for sure. So that sort of indicates a willingness to experiment from Ding. And uh, today, even though he ended up winning in instructive fashion. There were there were moments where Nepo leveled the field. So um, I think we've we've seen from these games that um, the game is. I don't think a, it's certainly not a foregone conclusion that it will be decided by the opening. They seem both willing to sort of try out fresher positions earlier by playing offbeat stuff. So or I, I guess more so Ding than than Nepo, but it will be uh, something to watch going forward. Yeah, it's a good point. In fact, if we didn't see knight d4 today, if we saw g5, um, it's possible black can sort of blockade the e and the d pawns. If I can throw in a chess kid reference, you know, uh, block the snowplow. Uh -huh. And uh, it is uncomfortable. You know, that's, I, you know what I love about the position today for all of your, uh, your adult learners out there? The eval might be like close to triple zero if he doesn't play knight d4. But as Napomnishi said himself, it's a much more difficult for position for black to play because number one, you have less space. And number two, any little slip. And if those pawns get rolling again, you immediately lose. I mean, that was actually seen in the line that happened in the game. After knight d4, he saw the exchange sack, but he didn't realize that after c5, d6 just wins because then the snowplow gets going again. 
if you guys don't know what the snowplow is, uh, you know, email me about a chess kid membership. Yeah, you got to brush up on your chess kit. Yeah. But yeah. but yeah, and it was quite instructive. Of, of course, this night D4 move, Nepo had more than 30 minutes on the clock and he played it in two minutes. And for any listeners who, who don't recall the position, uh, if you're only going to watch a game recap of uh, of one game, I would I would definitely check out this one because I felt like the the exchange sacrifice that Ding quickly played when given the opportunity was quite instructive because as Mike alludes to, he got the snowplow going. It was much easier for black to go wrong and black did go wrong. Um, so, so Mike, I think we've got the match as it stands now, pretty well covered. Um, as we wrap up, what would you say, like, how do you compare this to other matches you've attended? Of course, we had the honor of speaking to you in Dubai. It sounded like, um, quite the, uh, I don't know if circus is the right word, quite the spectacle when you take into account that there was the the World Fair Expo going on. Uh, this one from my eye seems more sedate. Is that accurate? Uh, sedate, yeah, especially because, uh, you know, New York, London, and Dubai are much more worldly cities than Astana. I don't want to say anything bad because everybody here has been so polite, whether it's the Yandex cab drivers or the people in restaurants in and outside of the hotel, like it's not the most exciting city. Uh, it's, it's, you know, paper flat, uh, but people have been incredibly nice. I want to say it's very similar to my first world championship in 2014 in Sochi in many reasons. Number one, you've got the former Soviet country. Of course, you know, Sochi is, is still very much in Russia. Um, you've got both players staying at the same hotel. That has not happened since Sochi. And as a result, the press corps is so much more likely to run into players, FIDE officials, official seconds, uh, people in the chess world intelligentsia, so to speak. So it feels more comfortable and familial. Uh, familial. In the last couple of world championships with Magnus, all of the Norwegian press would chase him around the city on the off days, like literally paparazzi. Here, we're all, we don't have to do that. Like I've, I've run into Nikita Vitsyukov in the elevator twice and, you know, uh, that's just kind of become a little bit more normal. So uh, I, I quite like it, actually, just because you've got so much more of an opportunity as a journalist to talk to the people you want to talk to. And uh, so I, I've kind of I didn't think it was going to be my most rewarding world championship, but it's kind of turning turning around for the better for, from a journalist perspective. Yeah. And from a match perspective. So, yeah, lots to look forward to in terms of how we watch it. Now, Mike, I know you've told me in the past that obviously your day job is predominantly promoting chesskid.com. Obviously, you're a legend amongst 10 year olds. Um, now, you said in the past that it's kind of like a perk that chess.com sends you here or a pierce if you prefer. Um, so <laughs> I, I do prefer that opening. So, go ahead. <laughs> so with, with this one, um, did you volunteer yourself or were you asked to come just out of curiosity? It was a little bit of both. I think I, I'm not going to say I drew the short straw. Nobody wanted to come. <laughs> In fact, I'm leaving after round nine and there's three or four people that could be taking my place, but I'm not even sure anybody's going to take my place. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, uh, the CEO of, of chess.com, Eric Alabest, told me a couple of years ago that, you know, you can still do journalism and you can consider it a perk of the job. You know, so I, I kind of do Olympiads and world championships. Uh, gone are the days where I go to St. Louis for two or three weeks. And actually, I have to say that I don't write the post-round news reports, which 
uh i don't miss because right, yeah. that's the most that's like formatting and cropping pictures and making sure you're spelling people's names right and if you god forbid put a baseball reference in then everybody hates you for being too american centric and um i love the stand-up reporting and it allows me to still do my my chess kid day job when i have free moments that doesn't go away just because i'm here so yeah i i both volunteered and nobody else was was willing to come but but their loss actually I'm getting a lot more questions than any other press conference because there's such a small press core here that I can pretty much ask three or four questions every round, which is which is kind of nice. I've never gotten to ask that many at a world championship before. Okay, excellent. Well, if anyone has any questions that they want Mike to ask, I'm going to go ahead and blow up his Twitter. Go ahead and submit them. He may or may not ask them. And on that note, if anyone has a... Uh, a reporter request for perpetual chess. So uh, th this match is really piquing my interest. So maybe I'll pop on and do a bonus pod before game nine, but at minimum, I will do another one after game nine preceding another rest day. Um, but if there's anyone you would like to hear from, it could be someone on scene or just, there's so many people who I, I always enjoy hearing their insights on the world championship. People like Jonathan Spielman's Twitch streaming, Erwin Lemie has been tweeting, which he doesn't do very often except for doing world championships. Um, so there's there's so many people that their interest perks up for the world championship. And it's nice to see that despite uh, some well-placed reservations about sort of the context of this match, once it gets going, it's and I feel the same way, you get reminded, oh, hey, you know, world championship matches, for any of their flaws in terms of the length of the games, they're extremely compelling. It's it's one-on-one -on -one and the storylines unfold and uh, it looks like it's going to be a good one. Yeah, I hope so. And uh, speaking from a journalist perspective, it's not very often that you get to hear from both players after a game. You know, I, I always hate how we treat chess players with white gloves that when they lose a game, we have to just let them go. And, you know, if there's $2 million on the line, they're sitting there full credit, they're answering questions. And I feel like the world championship is the most professional sporting event we have in that sense. Um, so I, I just, I like it as an event, no matter who's playing. So uh, it's really an honor to be here for my fifth one. Excellent. And an honor to have you hop on this podcast. So Mike, thanks as always. Uh, look forward to, to your continued reports. Uh, thanks. And my reference to the Peerts, of course, for your viewers out there is that we used to be roommates. And just to end the show in a funny story, we would order Thai food and then play one blitz game to decide who had to go pick it up. So uh, it was usually a Peerts. And uh, so that's, you know, I always have those memories of having to trudge down the stairs, a loser. It's about as close as I can feel to losing a world championship match. Yeah, the stakes felt high. But yeah, unfortunately, I had to, I had to go get it a little more often than you. But but I uh... I'll get in the lab and get my revenge someday. Um, all right, Mike. Well, enjoy the match. And thanks as always. Thanks, Ben. It was a pleasure. Sports Social Podcast Network.